Welcome to Leadership in the Digital Age, a podcast from the Center for Digital Transformation at UC Irvine. I'm your host, Vijay Gurbaksani, Director of the Center. Our thesis at the Center is that all companies must think like software companies. This podcast is about how companies are competing with software, creating novel forms of value, and doing so more productively. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most crucial challenges that confronts the digital society, the world that we live in, one of cybersecurity. Um, Nicole Perlroth, who is joining us today, is the cybersecurity and digital espionage journalist reporter for the New York Times, which of course is a premier newspaper in the US. And I've been reading her work ever since she started uh, writing uh, for the New York Times and perhaps even before when I think she wrote for Forbes, if I remember that correctly. Um, and I've been a big fan. And in fact, she doesn't know this yet, but uh, you know, because I teach classes on leadership in a digital world, uh, I use a lot of Nicole's material on cybersecurity because obviously that is something that every business leader and every government leader needs to, to, to think about. Uh, she's the author of the new book, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. It's one of those books that you pick up and you think it's going to be a book about cybersecurity and it's going to get technical. Uh, and this one reads like a spy thriller. It, it is just, an, you know, it, it's sort of a blend of Nicole's own journey, sort of. Uh, one of the things that struck me about the book was how much research actually goes into what she writes about, reminded me of sort of academic research to some degree. Uh, and you will sort of get a, a much deeper understanding of sort of where we are today uh, in sort of the cyber arms race. With that, Nicole, take it away. But I'm going to sort of ask the opening question, even though I have uh, about where, where, why did you, so we play the song For What It's Worth uh, by Buffalo Springfield. And you opened the book with a, a, a sort of the, a verse from this song. And so tell us about your book, of course, but why you started with that verse and, and why you wrote the book. So take it away. Thank you again for joining us and a very hearty welcome to you. Thank you so much, Vijay. It's been really nice getting to know Vijay um, and setting up this talk. And we've always traded kind messages on Twitter and he's been uh, such a source of support. So I was really happy to do this. So yes, the quote I have at the beginning of the book here is the Buffalo Springfield quote that just says, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Well, you know, the, you know, the, the quote, um, but the part I wanted to get to is, I think it's time we stop children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. I was just driving one day, to be honest with you. And it came on and I've always loved the song. And I just thought this is perfect. And this is what I'm trying to do with this book. I spent seven years researching. Uh, the idea was to write a book that was not for the technical audience. And I know most of you are um, a technical audience, but I wrote this book for my mom and hopefully for my son. Um, I wrote it for people who don't follow me on Twitter, um, who don't follow the InfoSec community on Twitter, um, who don't read the latest research reports. Uh, I wanted to write a book that put some of the information and uh, the debates around vulnerabilities and the cyber arms race uh, and move fast and break things yep. and all of these dynamics. I've been covering piecemeal in the New York Times. I wanted to put it into a readable, suspenseful narrative for the everyday American so that they're not intimidated by some of the technicalities involved in some of these debates, because I really think and I believe this from the bottom of my heart, that for too long, discussions around our vulnerabilities yep. have been taking place in closed door government corridors and in industry where anyone who dares question what's happening gets laughed off. And it was really important to me to give readers the lay of the land and say, it's going to take you children to get us out of this. And, you know, when we've seen legislation proposed, for instance, that just goes to identify critical infrastructure, mandate best practices for a water treatment facility or the power grid, 
the lobbyists always come in and they always say, this is going to be too burdensome on the businesses. And why don't we water this down and make this voluntary? And the fact of the matter is we're, we haven't done anything about, about these problems and they just keep getting worse. I know they're getting worse because every time my phone rings now, it's to cover an attack that's worse than the last. Um, and I really think it's time that we're going to need a next generation of thinkers to get us out of this. And so I wrote this book to put the tools um, and basic information in those readers' hands and hopefully write it in a way that uh, didn't make their eyes uh, roll to the back of their heads. Um, so a little bit about the book, you know, I was really fascinated, like Vijay mentioned, I used to work at Forbes magazine, I covered venture capital and startups. And coming into cybersecurity, I knew nothing about it. Um, you know, if you want to call me a Luddite, uh, I, I'm totally guilty of that. Um, I knew nothing about cybersecurity. When the New York Times called, they said, you know, we've noticed you've been writing these cover stories. Uh, we're interested in hiring you at the Times, but we're not sure you're going to be interested in the beat we would like you to cover. And I said, well, how about it? Could it be? You're the New York Times. I'll take whatever you're offering. And they said, it's cybersecurity. And this was around 2009. And I had been covering, you know, Peter Thiel and these venture capitalists and this gravy train of, of investors who'd invested early in Facebook. And there seemed to be no hotter topic than what I was covering. And I was just like, oh, you want to take me off that and put me on cybersecurity? I've gone out of my way uh, to learn as little about cybersecurity as possible. Surely there are other cybersecurity reporters that are better qualified to cover this. In fact, I know some of them. Here are their names. Call them and let me know when you need a new venture capital reporter. And what they essentially told me was, we've interviewed all those people and we have no idea what they're talking about. You're hired. So began my illustrious entry <laughs> to the halls of the New York Times. And, um, you know, initially I, I covered a lot of Chinese espionage. Uh, I started covering the Saudi Aramco attack, which you know, was Iran decimated attack, uh, decimated data at Saudi Aramco and replaced it with an image of a burning American flag. I covered Sony and North Korea's attacks. Um, and with each attack, like I said, they just kept getting worse and worse. And so I wanted to understand, okay, if we're not going to regulate this thing, what are the incentive models that are leading us down this road of further vulnerability? Because I know from covering these topics in Silicon Valley, I know that the mantra there, at least when I started on this beat, was move fast and break things. You know, this was what Mark Zuckerberg had sitting on his desk. Um, it was his motto. It was in their S1 at Facebook. And I knew move fast and break things wasn't leading us down a more secure path. Um, I knew at the individual level, level, we were all just seemingly okay with this Silicon Valley promise of a frictionless society of being able to order an Uber on our phone, but also for uh, contractors to be able to access the pressure and temperature and chemical levels uh, back at their industrial plants. And the one thing that I really wanted to understand was government's role in this. So, you know, technically, government agencies are charged with keeping us Americans safe. But I knew that there had been these murmurings of a gray market for vulnerabilities. Um, judging by the audience list, I think most of you know what a zero day is, but just in case you don't, uh, you know, at the most basic level, a zero day is a flaw in some code. Let's just make it easy. Your iOS iPhone software. And if I find a zero day flaw in your iOS iPhone software, and I'm a hacker, I can write a program or a zero day exploit, they call it, to get into your iPhone remotely and potentially read your text messages or turn on your audio and record your conversations. And these days, there is high demand for that capability. And the going rate for that capability as advertised online by zero-day brokers who give these to governments is $2.5 to $3 million. And there had always been murmurings of this market. Um, and really, my first real glimpse of it was a story by my friend and colleague, Andy Greenberg, who I worked with at Forbes magazine, who wrote this terrific profile of the Gruck. Uh, who is a South African zero-day broker living large in Thailand. And the Gruck 
told Andy about the fact that he was selling zero days to governments and uh, even was happy to pose next to a giant duffel bag of cash. And that story really broke open the fact that there was this zero day market and, and some of the pricing around this and the fact that governments would pay him to pay hackers for uh, zero day exploits. But what I learned was that after that story published, government stopped doing business with the Gruck. Uh, he was visited by the police. Um, no one wanted to do business with anyone who was going to talk to a reporter. Um, and the second thing that happened in terms of my learning of this market was I was invited into uh, look at a special trove of some of the NSA documents related to the Snowden leaks um, as part of a joint project the New York Times did with The Guardian. And in pouring through those documents, you know, the thing that Americans seem to be paying the most attention to in the world uh, was paying most attention to were things like the phone call metadata collection program uh, and um, some of the PRISM programs, the programs where uh, the, the U.S. government would seek secret court orders and go to companies like Microsoft and Apple and Facebook, et cetera, and uh, secretly collect data on their customers. But that was all lawful. And the, the, what I saw in those documents was something different. And like most Snowden documents, there wasn't a, a lot of context around this, but there were lots of mentions about capabilities that the NSA had in getting into basically every technology you could think of that was on the market. References to uh, ways to break into your Facebook messages, your Cisco firewalls, your Siemens software, your Windows system, your iPhone, your Android, your BlackBerry, et cetera. And there were also some passing mentions of our commercial partners or our third parties or our malware developers in the private sector. And to me, those were little clues or digital crumbs that alluded to, but did not really confirm that the NSA participated in this gray market for zero day exploits. So I promised myself when I got out of that closet that I would investigate the market a little bit further because I wanted to understand what happens when the U.S. government finds a zero-day flaw in Windows. You know, whether you know it or not, we all use Microsoft Windows, but also Microsoft Windows is now powering a lot of our critical infrastructure. So two decades ago, if the NSA or another government agency uh, found a zero-day exploit in Huawei software that China used or software that Russia used, no harm, no foul. You know, none of that was really affecting Americans because we use different software. But thanks to globalization, we were all now using the same software and the software was rolling its way into our critical infrastructure. So I was fascinated by this moral hazard that I, I saw that the government would pay hackers all over the world maybe to keep these vulnerabilities open. When did it decide it put Americans at risk? Um, you know, when did it, when was it monitoring to see if other adversaries or cyber criminals were using these same holes to attack American businesses? Um, I really wanted to know what the decision making looked like. And so I sort of started with what was public and it was really hard to get people to talk to me about this market. Um, I talk in the book about how, you know, Michael Hayden, the former NSA CIA director, when I told him I wanted to do a book or do a, uh, do more research on the zero day market. He said, sort of like, good luck, kiddo. And um, Leon Panetta said, you know, you're going to run into a lot of walls, Nicole. And I did, but I started with what was public and what was public at the time was there was this company, maybe you're familiar with it, iDefense, which had started paying hackers for bugs uh, around the turn of the century, around 2002, 2003. Um, and they did it to just give their customers at banks and government agencies an early alert to flaws in the code and give their customers workarounds. And then their customers, while well, the technology companies took a long time to fix these flaws, um, could protect themselves. So they started paying hackers for bugs and they were paying, you know, $75 for this, $100 for that, at most, at most $10,000. And the guy who started this company is a guy named John Waters. He's a real character uh, in the book. I call him the cowboy. And 
he started getting these phone calls first from technology companies like Microsoft and back in the day, Sun Microsystems, HP and Oracle, shaming him for paying hackers to probe at their products and turn over secret flaws in their code and giving hackers an incentive to, uh, you know, turn uh, probe away at their, their code. Uh, and then he started getting a different set of calls. And, and these ones were from defense contractors for the most part who said, hey, you know, those, those zero days you're paying hackers something like $400 for, I'll pay you $150,000 for it. So long as you never tell your clients and you never tell uh, the, the software manufacturer and that they never fix it. And that's when he realized that, you know, there was this very lucrative market for zero day exploits. And so I ended up tracking down uh, one of the first people to call him. Um, he's a zero day broker in those days who I call Jimmy Sabian in the book, but that's not his real name. And he was the first person from those early days to agree to sit down and talk to me. And he did it under the condition that I use a different name because even though he was out of the market, uh, he still worked with a lot of the same government agencies and, and customers. So um, basically what he told me that was that starting in the 90s, uh, he would get maybe a million dollars from government agencies. 80% of his business was at the Pentagon and intelligence agencies, but he did have some business with law enforcement agencies too, all of them American. And they would give him something like a million dollars for 10 zero day exploits. So they would go around and they would look for these flaws in code and they would develop them into exploits and it was time consuming. And then they would sell them to government and government would use them for espionage for the most part but also for battlefield preparations in the event that they might need to use these flaws to access the system, to drop a payload or a cyber weapon one day that could turn off the lights or disrupt um, you know, Iraq's communication channels. Um, and he realized that actually it would be a lot more efficient instead of his team of 25 people searching for zero days the world over in the software, if they paid hackers who were already finding these bugs in the software. And so they started sending uh, people over to Eastern Europe, where there was a lively um, industry, I guess you'd call it, of young hackers, uh, you know, many of them young, some of them teenagers who had had a really strong science and technology education, but didn't have the same job opportunities after the Cold War. And they would find these zero days and they would um, you know, sell them back to this contractor. And he described, I asked him at one point, who was the youngest uh, you know, guy you worked with? He said it was a 16 year old from Israel, that, that that was the best source of zero days in those days. Um, and he would take them back and he would turn them into zero day exploits and they would sell them to the government. And they never quite knew how they would be used with the exception of the fact that sometimes the government would come to them and say, we need to get into the uh, Russian embassy in Kiev tomorrow. And then they would pay top dollar uh, for that kind of urgent capability. And so, you know, back in those days, like I said, we were all looking at zero days in this other software, right? It made sense that we were paying Eastern European hackers for ways into software that was used predominantly in Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, same with China. You know, we, if we wanted to spy on... China or some of our adversaries in North Korea, uh, it made sense that we would find a zero day and exploit it in Huawei software. But like I said, the problem is that all of these technologies were converging and we were starting to all use the same software. Um, so I really, uh, the first half of the book is me digging into the history and origins of the zero day market. I also, um, managed to track down the man that they call the godfather of cyber warfare, uh, Jim Gosler, who is a real guy. He lives outside of Las Vegas and he's a legend in the space. And uh, I tell his story, but basically what he shared with me was that all of this started uh, because of a hack of American typewriters at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in the early 80s. And actually, it started as far back as the 70s, late 70s. Um, they suspected, people at the embassy always suspected that the Soviets were capturing their communications and even their unspoken communications. And 
they got a tip from the French that the French had found a bug in their teleprinters and that they should suspect that they also have a bug in their machinery. And so through this very heroic uh, classified feat, the NSA managed to bring back every piece of machinery back to Fort Meade and x-ray all of it, investigate all of it to look for a bug. And it took them 100 days to get the machinery back to Fort Meade uh, because they wanted to be really careful that the Soviets didn't have an opportunity to intercept their bug as it, as it made its way back to the States. And then it took another 100 days for them to examine every last piece of machinery, printers, teleprinters, crypto gear. And finally, what they found was this implant in the back of a typewriter that was the most sophisticated exploit we had ever seen. It was a tiny mag magne magnetometer. I can never pronounce that. A tiny magnetometer that measured the slightest disturbance in the Earth's magnetic field. And next to it was this tiny electronic unit that would catalog the disturbances and send it on to a radio unit that they later found buried in the embassy chimney. And that's how the Soviets were collecting our um, communications unencrypted. Every time a secretary typed out anything for the ambassador at the time, every single keystroke was going back to the Soviets. And so what Jim Gossler told me was that that was our big wake-up call. Until that point, we had pulled off sophisticated feats of our own, but it opened our eyes to the fact that, um, first of all, that the Soviets were way ahead of us in this game. And second of all, if we didn't uh, find a way to implant ourselves in every new piece of technology that came on the market, we would lose the Cold War and uh, we would be screwed, <laughs> essentially. And so, so began uh, America's adventures in digital exploitation. Um, and, you know, these days, uh, there's some problems with this. Um, we pulled off 10 years ago, a little bit more than that, an epic, epic cyber attack on Iran's nuclear facility the one that's commonly known as Stuxnet, but internally it was known as Olympic Games. And I still think that was the most sophisticated cyber attack the world has ever seen. It was careful. It was written with lawyers in mind. It specifically went after the exact configuration of centrifuges at Natan's nuclear facility it got into, uh, it jumped from the window systems into the logic controllers, the industrial controllers that controlled the, the speeds of the centrifuges or the rotors that, that spun the centrifuges. And it, once it got in, it waited 13 days just to make sure it was in the right system. Then it would speed some centrifuges up. Then it would sit back for 27 days and then it would slow some down. And then it would sit back for 27 days and all the while, Iran's engineers, when they were looking at their screens, everything looked like it was functioning smoothly. Um, that attack was brilliant. It was really interesting to go back and study the context around how that worm came to be and some of the decision-making in the W administration. But like most uh, computer worms do, that attack got out. Um, it didn't destroy anything else because it had been designed so carefully to only uh, exact destruction at Natanz, but you know it got out and it showed every other country in the world what was possible with zero day exploits and code, not just for espionage, but also for destruction. And since then, you know, I like to say there are no hard numbers here, but it seems these days, and especially after doing the research for this book that every government on the planet, with the exception of maybe Antarctica and a few others, are searching for stockpiling zero-day exploits of their own. And in many cases, this includes our allies, but allies in places like Turkey and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, who we know have used these same tools to spy on, in some cases, torture their own people. So I really track the spread of this market and these capabilities to those countries and to other countries like Mexico, where I discovered they were being used on um, nutritionists, people who at the time were advocating for a soda tax. Um, they're being used in India, 
Um, they're being used uh, to hack into a dissident's baby monitor. They're being used on journalists. And um, some of these zero exploits, zero day exploits are being sold um, from, you know, hackers all over the world, all over the United States. And some, some cases we're just selling them to uh, Five Eyes, the U.S.'s closest intelligence partners in the U.K. and Canada and Australia, New Zealand. Um, but increasingly, we're, we're sharing these tools with other governments, most of them allies, like I said, but some with dubious human rights records. And one of the most egregious cases I learned, which I, I've written about now for the New York Times recently, was a case where I learned that NSA hackers um, were being lured out of the agency with promises of double, quadruple their salaries to go overseas to station themselves in Abu Dhabi and work for an American contractor um, on behalf of the Emirates. And at first it all seemed very kosher that uh, they would just be doing the work that they were doing inside the NSA, tracking terror cells like ISIS, et cetera. They would just be doing it on behalf of a US ally. But very quickly the assignments changed to, can you actually hack into Qatar? And can you see if Qatar is funding the Muslim Brotherhood? And while you're in there, can you uh, read the Royals emails? And can you see where they're flying and who they're meeting with and what they're saying? And so one of these former NSA hackers came to me to his eternal credit and told me this story. And he said, you know, the moment he realized this whole arms race had gotten really out of control was the moment Michelle Obama, then First Lady's email started popping up on his screen in 20, 2015. He had been monitoring the Qatari royals' emails and uh, the Sheikah at the time, the Amir's wife, had invited Michelle Obama over to discuss her Let Girls Learn initiative. And they had been trading personal reflections and also information about their security details and their flight itineraries. Um, and all of that information and Michelle Obama, the first lady of the United States' emails were flowing back to former NSA hackers sitting in Abu Dhabi. Um, so that was just one example. I mean, I also went down to Argentina and I spend a lot of time in the book there because I was continued to be um, surprised by these claims that Argentina had some of the best zero day exploit developers in the world. And that always just seemed really counterintuitive considering where I was sitting in Silicon Valley. So I decided to go down to Buenos Aires myself. And indeed, it turns out that because of their export controls, they don't have the same access to the tools and technology and toys that we take for granted here now. There was no Amazon Prime. Um, they didn't even have iPhones when I was down there in 2015. If anyone had them, they had paid exorbitantly for them or they smuggled one in on a trip to the United States. And um, basically what they said is to access the same applications that you have and take for granted in the United States, we had to learn how to hack for these things. And it created this very healthy culture of hackers. Um, and in the past, uh, some of the biggest penetration testers, uh, penetration testing companies, companies that test systems for vulnerabilities to help them lock them up and secure them, we're based in Argentina. Um, core security was a big one. And what they would do is they would find zero day exploits and they would test them on customers like banks, but also customers in the United States like NASA. Um, and they would, uh, you know, test these zero day exploits on their systems and then use them to uh, secure them. But when I went down and to meet with the people who started core security, what they told me was these days, there is a new generation of exploit developer. And these exploit developers are not using these tools for defense. They've found that they can make far more money selling zero-day exploits to governments um, than they can working on the defensive side of things. And they don't have to report uh, you know, a $3 million payment uh, for an iPhone zero-day exploit, remote zero-day capability uh, for taxes. And they don't have to worry about Argentina's inflation and they can live pretty large. And so I asked uh, sort of the godfather of Argentina's hacking scene, a really dumb question. I said, so 
you know, well, they only sell these zero day exploits to good Western governments. And he said, Nicole, you know, you really have to think about what you mean by good Western governments. Last time I checked, the country that hacked another country into oblivion wasn't China or Iran, it was the United States. And by the way, the United States helped facilitate our dirty wars here. So we don't think too kindly of you anyway. So we'll just sell these capabilities to the government or broker that shows up with the biggest bag of cash. And it was at that moment that I really realized how far out of the United States control this market had drifted, um, combined with the fact that elsewhere, former NSA hackers were reading Michelle Obama's emails in this dragnet. And so, you know, that is essentially the book, that this market has drifted out of our control, that we may still be here in the United States, the world's most sophisticated cyber actor when it comes to offense. But we are also now its most targeted. You know, most adversaries are all lined up at our doors um, because they see we have systems of interest, both for profit and also for um, espionage and destruction and corporate espionage. Um, and also, in many ways, you could argue we're also becoming the most vulnerable because we're the most digitized. So I'll leave it there. And uh, Vijay, let you take it away. But that, there's my spiel. No, that was a great, I wouldn't call it a spiel. That's really eye-opening because, uh, you know, there's so much to unpack there. I don't even know where to begin anymore. I have all these questions and I'm sort of racing through my brain saying, what's a good place to start with all of this? But so let's, let's unpack this and let's just get down to sort of the basics. Who are, so, you, you know, one of the things we talk about in business schools a lot is about incentives and you can explain a lot with, with incentives. And uh, who are all of, not, not all, but who are the major players? It's clearly when you talk about Russia, you're talking about FSB and SRV, SVR and, you know, you've got all these different countries and sort of what you're also referring to is, uh, so this is a crowdsourced marketplace. I mean, you know, the United States sort of created the market, showed that this market actually is viable. And now a lot of uh, nefarious players have stepped in. Who, who do you see as sort of, let's take a US centric lens for a moment. Like, who should we be thinking about? You mean as com commercial players or nation no, states? No, I mean, like, you know, there's the Russias and the Chinas and then mm -hmm. there's just the criminals who are holding up hospitals or, Actually, let's expand the question a little bit. There's also things like, uh, you know, if you think, so we've talked a lot about sort of zero days, but there's also fake news. There's also sort of bots that targeted even you yeah. on Twitter, uh, you know, sort of creating a very, very sort of um, unfriendly, for lack of a better word, uh, conversation in the US about things where we used to be fairly collegial before. And we don't yeah. realize that we're being manipulated. So there's many players in this thing. What are their incentives? What are all these different people trying to do? One is obviously making money. Yeah. Well, the range of adversaries is, in my mind, even bigger after the events of January 6th. Yes. You know, I, I'm really focused in the book on the cyber threats. But after watching the events of that day play out, I realized, you know, the threat of domestic terrorism and disinformation and conspiracy theories, I think, might be in the immediate sphere, the, the biggest threat we face. Yes. Um, and that's an internal threat. Although, you know, we know Russia um, and other adversaries have juiced um, some of those conspiracy theories. So I don't really deal with that in the book beyond um, Russia's internet research agency and some of the trolling they did ahead of the election. But, you know, the, the state of play here is there's China, which basically for a long time has been pillaging our intellectual property, um, which wants to keep a grip on uh, control of the internet, which wants to surveil its own people, but we're increasingly seeing it use zero day exploits to spy not just on Uyghurs in China, but the Uyghur diaspora all over the world. That was a big discovery a couple of years ago that there was a website um, that served up information about Uyghurs. And if you visited it, uh, it, you would inadvertently download these zero day exploits uh, that would allow China to spy on your device in real time. So there's China, um, there's Iran, which 12 years ago, I read this uh, classified national intelligence estimate that said, you know, at the top of the heat, there's Russia, there's China. Um, and then at the bottom of this list is Iran and North Korea, 
which have the intent to do harm, but don't have the capabilities yet. That was in 2009. We never expected them to catch up so quickly. They are not fully caught up, but what they've demonstrated with attack after attack is clearly, yes, they do have the intent. Um, Iran, especially, we've caught them in our dams. Uh, Israel last year caught them in their water treatment facility, uh, trying to stop water flow or up the level of chemical in the water. Um, and we've seen them pull off these really destructive attacks with pretty rudimentary code, you know, just with a wiper code that essentially decimated the data at Saudi Aramco and replaced it famously with the image of the burning American flag. Uh, you know, when Sheldon Adelson said that the U.S. Uh, should bomb Iran, uh, you know, they retaliated by decimating data and servers at uh, Sam's Casino. So, and we continue to see them probing our critical infrastructure. And I was shocked last year when I was really covering um, the threats in the run-up to the election, when security researchers told me, you know, by the way, uh, the most prolific adversary we face in cyberspace these days isn't China anymore, it's Iran. They've really emerged as one of the most prolific uh, adversaries we face. Russia clearly is probably the most sophisticated adversary we, we face. And the threat is so multifaceted <laughs> that we could probably spend three hours on them. We've but, you know, okay, well, starting with disinformation, I mean, the goal is, in my mind, to tangle us up in our own infighting so that we're so distracted that we're not noticing what Putin's doing over there. That, that to me is the goal. I also think that in places like Ukraine and here, the messaging is democracy is not viable. You know, democracy is not viable. Um, and in many ways, they've used our constitution against us. Uh, you know, with the disinformation and the debates we're having around cancel culture and the bot problem, you know, they've really found a way to use our First Amendment against us. And with the solar winds attack, you know, the beauty of it and the brilliance of it, the part you really have to admire is that they did this from inside the United States, that the, the threat was coming from inside the house. They hacked SolarWinds, a Texas IT company. They got into the software update mechanism, but they also staged their command and control servers in New Jersey, I think it was, you know, with GoDaddy and Amazon Web Services, places the NSA can't look, nor do we want the NSA to look in those places after some of the debates we had around Snowden. Last thing right. Google or Amazon wants is the NSA inside its systems or even close to the periphery of their systems. So how do we solve this threat? I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, there was this executive order that came down that now, now these cloud services have to report some of the, their users, uh, foreign users uh, and foreign IP addresses. But, you know, do we have a tolerance for them to go further to do what it would really take to identify threats that come from inside the U these U.S. systems, I don't know. Um, and then you know, cyber criminals. I mean, ransomware attacks are have become a plague of their own. I covered an attack a couple months ago on an attack at the University of Vermont Medical Center, where you know sometimes you think ransomware. Okay, they're lo just locking up the business systems. This doesn't affect patient treatment, but chemo patients, it had wiped out the protocols um, for how to deliver chemotherapy treatment. And these nurses were trying to recall these, these protocols from, from memory. And one of them told us, like, why, is, why is no one seeing how bad this is? Yep. The only thing she could compare it to was working in the burn unit after the Boston Marathon bombing. So these attacks keep getting more and more visceral. Um, and a lot of it is coming from cyber criminals. And a lot of it is ransomware. And instead of doing something about it, it seems like we just keep plugging our crap in. Yeah, <laughs> We're just internet of things. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because I think one of the things you refer to in, in your book, and I'm one of the advocates of all companies need to think like software companies, but um, increasingly sort of one of the biggest points of vulnerability is the software supply chain. You know, because, you know, when you buy something or lease something from SolarWinds or any other piece of software for that matter, you know, uh, Microsoft products, Windows, whatever the case might be, you know, we can sort of authenticate 
where the, I mean, in some cases you can, but in many cases you can't. Who wrote the code? How much of it is open mm -hmm. source? And I think you mm -hmm. say in the book that one of the pieces of open source that a lot of software mm -hmm. uses is a hungry gentleman in England or something like that, who is now mm -hmm. maintaining the code and is not even sort of uh, rewarded for his work. And we're relying so heavily on this. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you have bad actors actually working for some of these software supply chains, many of which are mm -hmm. in countries like Belarus, you mentioned, or uh, mm -hmm. other Eastern Europe and things where it's easier for, I would say, Russia to infiltrate. Um, mm -hmm. How do we sort of, oh, and then sort of where you open, which is sort of the Mark Zuckerberg move fast and break things. You know, one of the things we talk about in all our digital strategy classes is first mover advantage or early mover advantage, which is get your products mm -hmm. You know, get your products out there as quickly as you can. So this is, any suggestions for how we should think of how we can authenticate, verify, quality certify against mm -hmm. not just failure, but against bugs for software? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's um, I always feel funny offering solutions since I'm not a techie, but I felt like I couldn't write a book saying, this is so messed up and offer zero solutions. So I list all my solutions, proposed solutions in the epilogue. And one of them is that it's time for us to have something like a bill of materials. Yeah. It's time for us to understand what's in our network. It's time for us to understand, you know, when solar winds happen and I called some of the, the victims, they didn't even know what solar winds was or that they were using it, let alone that it's built and maintained in Belarus. Um, you know, it's even worse when it comes to open source. You know, so much of our software these days contains open source tools. And the concept there was that as long as they're open source, like Wikipedia, there would be enough eyeballs on it. The more eyeballs we get on these things, the more secure they would be. Well, a couple of years ago, Google and others found Heartbleed, you know, this problem, this giant gaping hole in this open SSL encryption protocol that was used by the Pentagon and Amazon and the FBI. And uh, when we dug in, we realized, yes, it was just uh, maintained by two guys named Steve in, in the UK that barely had enough for their electrical bill. So, um, so Jim Zemlin at the Linux Foundation was very helpful in talking to me about this. And I think he is really um, thinking very deeply about these issues. And some of his ideas are let's identify the most critical open source protocols out there. Let's find out what, what's it going into our high-end cars, what's going into our airplanes, what's getting it and making its way into transportation and healthcare and pacemakers and insulin pumps and um, all of that good stuff. And then let's find out, you know, who's securing it. Let's make sure they have enough funding. Uh, let's make sure that they've had training you know, perhaps it's time to discuss some kind of vetting procedure for some of the people who maintain these open source code, because we have seen attacks where um, it's come in from an insider, you know, who's planted back doors in some of this open source code. So we should know who these people are. Um, but, you know, really, like, a, it, just backing up for a minute, you saw the SolarWinds hearings today, you know, you saw some discussion of a breach notification law, better disclosure uh, rules, um, you know, all these things. And I came out this from a very cynical place of people have been talking about those solutions for a very long time and they never get implemented. And perhaps it's different this time because SolarWinds is so pervasive um, and it's in our government networks and it's in the Department of Energy and the State Department and um, so maybe it's different this time, but if it's not, uh, which I suspect it won't be because I've become jaded after covering this for some years, uh, I think it's really important we focus on the code itself. Yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest thing we can do is change the incentive structures, um, you know, and so yes, we need to vet open source and we need to put in place all of these protections, but change the incentive structures. Um, you know, give companies tax credits who develop secure software, who um, have subjected themselves to real penetration tests, not just compliance checklists, um, who use two-factor authentication, who have regular patching and update procedures, uh, who have strong password management, you know, incentivize companies financially to do these things. Um, 
And, you know, I am not above suggesting that there also be sticks here. You know, I don't think it's okay that SolarWinds password to its software update mechanism was SolarWinds123. You know, most of the attacks we see right now, as we're talking, are password spraying attacks. So let's do away with the password. And until we can do away with the password, let's make sure we don't have SolarWinds123 as our password, you know? Um, let's turn on multi-factor authentication. And I know that these things sound very unsexy and uninteresting and offense has always been way more interesting, but uh, you could knock out 75% of the threats we face if you do the most basic things. If we don't click on phishing links and we put in place these basic procedures, they wouldn't stop solar winds, but you know, we still don't know how Russia got in, um, if it was indeed Russia. And you know, there, there's just a lot to be done on the low-hanging fruit. And until we can address low-hanging fruit, there's really no point in having some of these higher-level conversations. Yeah, one of the things that's worth highlighting from the book, and actually that's not from the book, but is in the, is in the news every day and you've written about it, is sort of how uh, effective and how potentially deadly the solar winds attack can be. Because uh, they were in, whoever it was, most likely Russia, as we've read, uh, has been in our computers for what, coming on a year now? Um, mm -hmm. And we don't know sort of what subsequent backdoors mm -hmm. uh, they've left. So for mm -hmm. now, the, the hope is that this is espionage and not sort of real damage, but there is nothing in some ways to sort of share mm -hmm. some of these backdoors um, with nastier actors, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. One of the things that jumps to my mind is sort of this whole thing we saw in the Texas debacle. Uh, you know, that was sort of without uh, a cyber attack, but it shows you what can happen with a cyber attack. You bring a grid mm -hmm. down and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden we're in deep trouble wherever they choose to attack. There's a funny story that you mm -hmm. tell about. Uh, if you could tell this story quickly about the dam in uh, Oregon versus the dam in upstate New York. I thought that was a funny story. Not, not funny, funny, but sort of interesting how they just screwed up because they made a mistake. Yeah. Um We've had a lot of these close calls where things could have been a lot worse if there hadn't been some sloppy code baked in or um, they hadn't you know, been at the wrong target. And so this story is about um, some Iranian hackers who got into the wrong dam uh, in 2013, I think it was. Um, you know, Michael Daniel told me this story. He was then White House cybersecurity coordinator and he got this call in the middle of the night from John Brennan and the CIA director who said, they're in the Bowman Dam. We, there are hackers in the Bowman Dam. The Bowman Dam in Oregon holds back a tsunami's worth of water uh, that if, if we had hackers messing with the locks at the Bowman Dam, you'd be talking about a serious terrorist attack if they unleashed the water, um, unleashed the locks to that dam. Fortunately, it turns out that they were in the wrong Bowman Dam. They were in a Bowman Dam that held back a, a tiny babbling brook in Westchester County, New York. But for about 20 minutes there, uh, you know, John Brennan and Michael Daniel were thinking they were going to have to respond to a terrorist attack on uh, the Bowman Dam. Fortunately, it was not the Bowman Dam. But we've had a lot of these close calls. You know, there was just this attack. Jay mentioned the other week at a water treatment facility in Oldsmar, Florida, where if there hadn't been an engineer sitting at his computer watching this phantom cursor move around his screen, uh, you know, who knows what would have happened. And even actually after he saw this phantom cursor moving around his, his screen, um, he thought nothing of it because they give access to supervisors and outside contractors all the time. It was only when that phantom cursor made its way to the chemical controls and up the level of lie LYE in the system from 100 parts per million to 11,000 parts per million, they realized that this was this was an attack. So we continue to have these very close calls. Um, and for whatever reason, whether it's a mistake, or Russia decided they didn't want to turn off the lights that day, and they're waiting for the appropriate geopolitical trigger, the big one hasn't happened yet. Um, but my goal in writing the book was to say, here, here's where we are. You know, we really are two clicks away. With solar winds, we think it's the SVR. Um, we know the SVR because 
they've hacked into the White House and the State Department. They were one of the two groups who um, hacked into the DNC, but they're the ones that didn't do anything. You know, we really think of them as these very sophisticated but quiet prowlers. We also know they're really difficult to eradicate from our networks. When I talked to the people who worked on the remediation at the White House State Department hacks by the SVR in 2014, 2015, they described the, the act of trying to get them out as hand-to-hand digital combat. At one point, uh, the SVR hackers took control of their RSA net witness tool um, to manipulate it so they would not see some of Russia's other backdoors. So this is the adversary we think we're dealing with. The bad news is they're very sophisticated and they're very good at planting other modes of entry and egress. The good news is they're not the other guys, the guys that turned off the lights in Ukraine, uh, that you know pulled off the NotPetya attack that decimated data in Ukraine, but also boomeranged around the world. And uh, unfortunately, there seems to be a parallel attack that was just uncovered in France on Centrion yes. software that so, they think was Sandworm. Um, and those accesses could be you know used for much more dark purposes than stealing you know, emails and strategy one of, planning. One of the challenges with software is it leaks pretty easily. It's really not hard to copy a text once you've seen them, and sometimes you can even get access to the code. I want to sort of take the conversation to a slightly different place, may not be relevant here, but are there some general sort of guidelines that we can borrow from nuclear non-proliferation mm-hmm. that might help mitigate the, the threats that we all face? Because your phrase two clicks away just terrifies me. Because mm-hmm. if somebody really wants to damage, they can, they can do it today. Well, it's a great question. And we are pursuing digitally, digital mutually assured destruction in Russia. You know, David Singer and I reported uh, two years ago. Was it two years ago? Gosh, I already forgot. Three years ago that um, Cyber Command was hacking into the Russia grid. And it's a little bit of an interesting backstory in that, um, you know, we learned Russia, we, we learned Cyber Command had been hacking the Russian grid and making a loud show of it, um, in part as uh, retaliation for the fact that Russia has been hacking our grid for a long time. And in this sort of demonstration of mutually assured destruction, if Russia was going to go ahead and use their access to turn off the lights here, we could do the same to them. Now, when we went to go publish that story and we called the National Security Council, usually you have these very painful conversations where they tell you, you cannot possibly publish this. You will have blood on your hands. But this time they said, oh, no, we have no problem at all with you publishing the story. <laughs> they wanted Russia to know that we were hacked, yes. hacking their grid. Yes, um, it- and the reason was mutually assured destruction. So, you know, who knows? I don't know whether that is the reason why Russia didn't do a bigger hack of our election this time around. Right. Um, I don't know why, you know, I don't know if that is the reason Russia has not used the same access to do what they did to Ukraine and turn off the lights and turn off the power here. But what I do know is um, code is not nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons. You don't need fissile material to develop a cyber weapon. The barrier to entry is much lower. All you need is a laptop and you're in the game. Um, The other thing about code is uh, we can hack our adversaries and if they discover it, they can study it, they can reverse engineer it. And in some cases they have retrofitted it and used it for their own purposes. So you're sort of handing the enemy uh, your capabilities. That's not true when it comes to nuclear weapons. The other thing is attribution. You know, how do you, um, so so many of these attacks that we've seen by Russia um, have been false flags. You know, there was an attack on the Olympics. Uh, People couldn't get their tickets to get to the opening ceremonies. There were all these empty seats in Seoul, um, in South Korea. And just because it was in South Korea, the first uh, assumption was that this was a North Korean attack to embarrass their South Korean neighbors. And lo and behold, it turned out to be Russia. There was an attack on a French television network that took out 12 television channels in France. And uh, it looked like it was an attack by ISIS. That was Russia too. So, you know, it, it, they're clearly, <laughs> they're clearly uh, you know, making attribution more difficult. Um, and so it's, it, how do you respond in a quick way uh, to an attack, say, on our grid, when you're not even sure at first who it is? Um, you know, these are, these are complicated questions. 
Now, in one of the anecdotes in your book, which I thought was fascinating, you ask, somebody asked this guy who runs software research, I forget the exact title, how many lines of code is the maximum that you can guarantee a program is reasonably secure? And he says, 10,000 lines of code. And then there's an example where somebody else has hacked a 3,000 line of code uh, and nobody can decipher that this guy actually put, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't remember exactly what the intrusion was, but he put intrusive lines of code in there. So, and, you know, some, as an ex-coder myself, it's really, really hard to figure out what is going on in somebody else's code, especially mm-hmm. when you get down to the machine level where some of these threats uh, actually occur. Let's say we're sort of running out of time. So I still want to close with uh, what do you think um, as, as individuals, what should we be doing to manage our own security better? And perhaps even at the company level that you've touched on that some already. So I think the best thing you can do is ask yourself, what is the threat to you? Um, and so, you know, if you are a utility, you know, an electrical utility, that probably means segmenting you know, or air gapping your network. So no one has access to the control that can turn off the power remotely without some serious um, multi-factor authentication and other protections in place. If you're the water treatment facility operator, it probably means asking yourself, should it be possible that someone with access to our network can up the amount of lye in the drinking supply? Mm -hmm. Probably not. You know, let's add some more protections around that or just remove the ability to remotely access that control completely. If you're me and you're a journalist and you're writing about some of these threats and you sometimes get leaks, it's my sources. So that's where I spend the most amount of time being paranoid. You know, I, I you've probably heard me say this with Jay, but I, um, you know, in some cases I just use pen and paper with mm-hmm. my most sensitive sources. I have this standing dim sum appointment, or at least I did before the pandemic where we just meet up on this one day every month that we would leave our devices at home and never tell a soul about it. Um, And, you know, I use Signal, the encrypted messaging app, you know, but for most Americans, it's your personal data and it's your bank account. So, you know, the best things you can do are use different passwords for different sites, turn on multi-factor authentication, maybe use a password manager. Uh, don't click on links and attachments from people you don't know. Examine the sender when they send you an email or a text message with a link. Um, you know, it's really basic stuff. And it's not going to stop a sophisticated adversary like the SVR from hacking you. But chances are, if you're the average American, you don't have to worry about the SVR hacking right. you. <laughs> so you can knock out you know, 90% of the threats that you face by just doing the really boring, tedious things. And then at the business level, it's the same thing. You know, what are your crown jewels? How do you segment them away from the rest of your network? If you're a hospital, you know, do you, does your medical equipment really need to be attached to your broader IT network? Probably not. Um, you know, can you keep patient records on a separate system so that if someone ends up clicking on a link, you know, it doesn't basically lead to a ransomware attack on your systems. I mean, during the pandemic, the attacks we face, it's become impossible for me to keep track. And I keep track of these things. They are so prolific. They're coming from all over and they're getting quicker and more deadly than before. Ransomware, it only takes 45 minutes now from initial entry point, like a spear phishing attack to full, um, full control of the network. 45 minutes, yep. you know, no one is sitting there watching, protecting against spear phishing. And, you know, the, the, the attacks on our hospitals are just getting worse and worse and on these municipal systems. So, you know, really thinking strategically about what is the thing I have to put in the safe and right. how do I make that safe inaccessible from the outside world will help a lot of people. For those of you who are thinking about writing or just reading this book, or just it's one of the best works of narrative nonfiction that I've seen because it really has a narrative. And, and some of these characters come to life, you know, in terms of my, my favorite character in the book was Zero Day Charlie. Uh, he just seems to be this personality that is sort of would be an interesting to have a drink with kind of guy. Um, but with that, uh, Nicole, thank you so much for your time. I uh, remember the phrase two clicks away. And again, uh, Nicole Perlroth, the author of This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, 
buy her book. And thank you again. And it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much, Vijay.